Well, good morning, everyone. Like Pete said, if you don't know me, my name's Ashley, um, and I'm so excited to be here this morning and uh, to be talking to you about a topic that's really been on my heart for the past few months and is something I have been walking out um, every day for a while. Um, so I'm just going to pray to kick things off, and then we'll crack into it. Lord, I just thank you for this day. And I thank you for this family and this place uh, that we can just come together and seek you and learn more about you. And so I just thank you also for this message that you have given to my heart. And I just pray that it would minister uh, to our hearts today, that we would uh, be able to look at joy afresh and look at joy anew and be able to go out and live our lives in a different way filled with you, God. Amen. So over the past few months, Jesse's been mentoring me about preaching and communication. And so in his classic style, I'm going to start off with a story. (laughs) And it's a story about a little boy, uh, just like Jesse often talks about Archer and Bennett. I'm going to be talking about uh, my wee nephew, Mitchell. He's three years old and he's such a fun, great part of my life. And yeah, he's just wonderful. Uh, So in late August, my parents went on a lovely, luxurious holiday to Alaska. Um, and so I went and house sat with my sister around at their house, so I got to go and hang out with Mitchell for a whole week. And one night after dinner, we had these like delicious, deluxe, banoffee pie-flavoured ice creams made by Lewis Road Creamery, if anyone can afford that organic, beautiful milk. Um, you know, so we, we, but we had saved one for Mitchell for him to have the next day. So the next night rolled around, and we told him, we said, Mitchell, if you eat your dinner, there is a very special treat for you. I'm sure all parents are familiar with bribing children to eat food. <laughs> and so he was like, oh, okay, whatever, and then started eating his dinner. And so we were about halfway through eating dinner, and then he decided he was done. And we were like, mm, you haven't really eaten that much. So we said, Mitchell, if you just eat two more pieces of meat that are on your plate, there's a really, really special treat for you. And he was like, oh, okay, maybe. And then he like just kept looking at his plate and still like, mm, not sure if I want to eat any more. And then we're like, just eat two more pieces of meat, please, Mitchell. And then we'll give you this really, really yummy treat. And he was like, nah, he refused. By this stage, he started like, he was not going anywhere near that plate. He was like pushing his chair away from the table to like get away as fast as possible. So we just let him sulk for a little bit. And then after he calmed down, we see, he asked for a piece of toast. And we were like, okay, yeah, you know, you can have a piece of toast. Sure, you, you can, we can do that for you, but... If you eat just two more pieces of this meat, then we'll give you something way yummier than toast. And he was like, nah, toast. And we were like, okay. So Jess, my sister, went and made him a piece of peanut butter and jam toast. And so his ice cream remained hidden in the freezer. You see, Mitchell settled. He settled for a safe option. He settled for PB&J toast. You know, it was something that he knew he liked. It was something he was really familiar with and it didn't require him to make any kind of sacrifice. You know, he had the option of probably having the most delicious ice cream he's ever had in his three little years of life. You know, if he'd just pushed through his pickiness and his reservations and just eaten two more pieces of meat, then he could have had it. You know, and I have no doubt, because I had one, that that ice cream was better than a piece of toast. But... He settled for less, and, you know, he settled for less than what we had in store for him, so he missed out as a result. Mitchell settled for a safe option. He settled for less than the best that we had to offer him, and we do this too. 
we also settle for less in our lives, especially in regards to joy. You know, we settle for less than the amazing gifts that God really wants to give us, the promises that he has in store for us. You know, and I know that it's hard to believe that God's promises are better than ice cream because delicious, dessert is delicious, you know. You know, so today we're just going to press into that. You know, and my prayer is that you would grab onto it and just learn how to unlock this precious gift that God so desperately wants you to have. So when we think about it, joy is one of the greatest and most powerful feelings that we can experience as humans. You know, and we usually associate it with times of happiness or goodness and enjoyment. You know, you were saying you were feeling pretty joyful when maybe you got married or you had children, or when you got a promotion at work that you'd been working for. You know, times when you were healthy, and your finances were in great shape, and you had no need. You know, you'd probably say those were some joyful times. You know, but what about the times when life sucks? Because in all honesty and in vulnerability, life sucks sometimes. It's so hard. You know, sometimes things just don't go the way that we want them to. You know, maybe it's a time you've lost your job unexpectedly or somebody that you love passed away too soon. You know, times when your finances are strained and your marriage or your relationships seem to be falling apart. You know, times when you're dealing with chronic pain or illness. You know, there's times when there doesn't seem to be enough money in the bank or hours in the day. So if you love to take notes in church, then get your pens ready, because here comes the first point that I want to make today, and it comes straight from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. So flip or scroll there in whatever kind of Bible format that you like to use. In most Bible translations, you'll see the words, count it all joy, or consider it all joy. James 1, uh, verse 2 to 3 goes, count it all joy, my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials. Just see how when James wrote this, he doesn't say, count it all joy, just when you want to. Or count it all joy, just when things are going along nicely in your life. No. He says, count it all joy, when you face trials of many kinds. You know, I think we all know what a trial is. It's hard. It is so hard. It pushes us physically or emotionally or spiritually. And sometimes it's a combination of all three of those. You know, it's generally a very uncomfortable time and one that we find it hard to be positive or even joyful in. You know, I've experienced a season like this um, over the past five months of my life. Uh, on the 1st of June, I was in a car accident. Um, I, had, I was over in the Wairarapa, been out um, tramping for the day, and I had slowed down to turn uh, right across the main road over in Masterton. Um, but unfortunately, a distracted driver behind me hadn't seen that I'd slowed down and pulled to the side of the road, and so he drove straight in the back of my car at around 80 k's an hour. The impact of, um, you know, the, the jolt of everything that happened, it was so forceful. My head, you know, flicked forward, whacked back on the back of the seat, and I got the most horrendous fright. 
And you know, the sound of the impact when that happened was just incredible. And anyone who's also had the unfortunate um, experience of being in a car accident will know exactly what I'm talking about. It's just a deafeningly loud sound that just comes out of nowhere. And it was a sound that kept replaying over and over and over in my mind constantly for weeks and even still now uh, since the accident. So my sweet, beautiful little green Mazda 2, aptly named Kermit, was written off. You know, and the force of the two vehicles colliding was actually so incredible that my rear exhaust pipe actually punched a hole in the number plate of the car that crashed into me. And five days after the accident, I was diagnosed with a concussion, which, which eventually progressed into post-concussion syndrome, chronic hyperventilation disorder, and generalized anxiety. I haven't worked for five months now, and plans are only just starting to shape up for me to return to work gradually over the next three to six to eight months. Nobody really knows. I had to buy a new car. Fortunately, insurance had my back. You know, I couldn't even drive that car for a month. It just sat in my driveway. You know, my calendar, it used to be full of shifts and, you know, social events and church events. And now it was full of doctor appointments, physio appointments, psychologist meetings, and uh, meetings with my occupational therapist. For the first four to six weeks, I barely even left my house. I barely even left my bed, to be quite honest. And I spent every day, most of it alone, in the dark, trying to manage my symptoms of severe headaches, nausea, dizziness, and fatigue. You know, I was also so hypersensitive to sound and light that even going outside was so hard. You know, and I was always so tired, you know, and I still struggle with it today. The fatigue is just, was just incredible that I would still be tired all day even though I would sleep for 10 to 12 hours at night and three to five hours during the day. You know, I couldn't just drive down to the shops to get some lunch. You know, I couldn't go to the movies. I couldn't go and hang out with my friends. I couldn't go out for dinner, and I couldn't sit in a cafe for longer than 30 minutes. You know, I couldn't even come to church because this environment was just way too overstimulating for my brain. You know, I used to be fit and healthy and really adventurous, but then my concussion meant I couldn't go for a 20-minute walk, you know, just around the block without collapsing on my bed and not being able to get up for three hours. The past five months have been the most physically, emotionally, and spiritually challenging season of my entire life. But God showed me how to be, you know, of all things, he showed me how to be joyful in it. You know, he showed me how to count it all as joy. Initially, I couldn't understand why on earth God would demand that I be joyful when I was living in such sadness and pain and loneliness. You know, it really did suck. You know, how can God expect us to have joy when things aren't going right? You know, how can we possibly count all of the difficulty that we face here on earth as joy when everything seems to be falling apart? You know, to us, this seems absolutely impossible. But I think we only think that it's impossible because we've got joy all messed up. You know, our Western culture has subtly taught us that happiness and joy are the same thing. 
that we can use those words interchangeably. And until God really revealed this truth in my heart a few months ago, you know, I thought joy was just some sort of supreme, elevated level of happiness. You know, but in the life of a Christian, based on what it says in God's word, you know, happiness and joy are two very different feelings. So that's the next point that I want to make. Happiness and joy are not the same. You see, the word happiness, it actually, in fact, relates to the word happenstance. Your personal level of happiness is directly proportional to your situation that is happening. You know, naturally, when something really nice is going on in your life, you're pretty happy about it. You're feeling pretty positive and on top of the world. You know, but this, my friends, being happy about your situations is not exactly joy. You know, our culture has taught us that happiness is the same as joyfulness. You know, that our level of ability to have joy in our lives is directly related to the way that our lives are going by the standards of this world. You know, society and marketing has been telling us that, you know, if we don't have our dream house, you know, if we haven't traveled the world, if we don't have lots of nice things and a nice car and a beautiful home, you know, or if we don't have a glass of Coke in our hands, that we can't be joyful in this life. But really, truly, joy comes from the faithfulness, the love, and the promises of God. You know, and, and how do we know that this is true? Because you'd be like, well, I don't know, I suppose I feel pretty joyful sometimes. But it's actually everywhere in the Bible. I was astounded when I started looking into this, just how often joy comes up in the Word of God. So I'm just going to uh, rattle off a few examples because I think that proclaiming this truth is so, so powerful. Romans 15:13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him. Nehemiah 8:10, Do not grieve because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Psalm 16, 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Psalm 94, 19, when anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. Isaiah 61, 10, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in God. 2 Corinthians 6, and this is just a wee paraphrased version, but Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, yet possessing everything. And finally, Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Now, as you see in the Old Testament and the New Testament, Different writers all say the same thing. You know, true joy is found in the King of Kings. It's found in the Lord of Lords, our mighty Father God in heaven. You know, and just note from that final scripture, Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You know, this call to rejoice, the call to have joy in God is actually also a command that Paul was giving to the Philippian church. You know, and Paul can tell us to rejoice in the Lord you know, because it's actually quite possible 
you know, we, there's never anything in the Bible that make, asks us to do something that we can't actually do. You know, and Paul has authority to make that kind of statement as well because he knew that life sucked sometimes, yet he was still able to have joy in God. You know, he was in prison and placed under house arrest for doing the thing that he loved doing and the thing that God had called him to do, you know, which was sharing the gospel. So in saying rejoice in the Lord always, he was revealing a glorious truth that we can be joyful, that we can count it all joy even when we're sad, even when life is difficult or it's different than we imagined it would be. You know, and I may that it, I know it may seem like an oxymoron, you know, being sad yet also joyful. But just hear me out, don't, don't shut off just yet. You know, because if you're sad, your sadness is usually only directed at one thing. And that thing is usually a situation that is happening in your life. It's a happenstance. You know, but here, here's, here's when joy comes in. You know, although things in our lives may not be going to our plan, or if we're in pain or we're suffering to some degree, I want you to know that underlying absolutely everything that is going on in your life, everything that looks like an absolute train wreck right now, you know, underlying all of that which seems like such a mess, under all of that is the never-ending, never-failing goodness and faithfulness and love of God. You know, he's got that situation Whatever you're sad or unhappy about, he's actually got that all wrapped up because we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. It's Romans 8, 28, just FYI. And having joy, it doesn't look the same in every season of your life. You know, it doesn't always mean laughing and jumping around and screaming with joy all of the time. I definitely was not doing that over the past five months. You know, it doesn't always mean doing that in the midst of deep sadness. You know, there were some hideously hard days over the past five months of my life where I was so upset and I would barely leave my bed or have the energy to accomplish anything in a day. And I was often, like sometimes on a daily basis, crying about my situation because I couldn't understand why it had happened to me. You know, and I still have days like that. You know, I still have days where I'm really sad and literally crying out to God to encourage me and to help me to carry on with my life and what he's called me to do and be. You know, but through the season, God showed me how to count it all joy. You know, as he gave me a different kind of peace and a different kind of contentment to my heart, even though I was upset and sad and in pain. You know, you know, I eventually came to the knowledge of understanding that he had a greater plan. He had a greater plan in mind for my situation. You know, through my battle with my health, he's been able to accomplish some things that have been far better than I could have ever come up with on my own. You know, we honestly think that we know us. We know what's best for us. We know what we need in our lives. You know, we think we know who we truly are but often we're wrong. You know, God always finds ways to perfect our lives and transform us for better. You know, I don't believe that God caused me to have this head injury and for me to suffer for this long time. You know, but he still used it. He still used it for his glory. 
you know, through this time, I've been able to navigate and get proper help for lots of undealt things in my life. And because of this, I'm able to move forward into a better, a far healthier version of myself than I was on the morning of the 1st of June. You know, and that is why I can count this season as joy. You know, for the first time after the accident, I actually had to seek God for joy in my life. You know, because everything else that I had been using in my life to give me joy, to give me hope and peace, I couldn't do anymore. You know, all these other ways I've been trying to fill this deep longing for joy were no longer accessible to me. And literally all I physically and mentally had the energy to do was cry out to God. You know, it was only then when I hit rock bottom and when everything else was stripped away that I really saw how wrong I had been all these years about joy. You know, I had been confusing happiness with joy and only by rock bottom did I see that joy had actually always been available to me. You know, so despite all of your past or your present circumstances or emotions, you can still have joy. You know, and I'm not talking about happiness. I mean real, genuine joy. You know, this is a gift that God so desperately wants to give you. You know, just like we desperately wanted to give Mitchell that ice cream so badly. You know, things that happen in life, that is so hard. And you're allowed to be sad about those things. You know, grief is a normal part of life. But just know in your heart that right in the midst of your sadness, you can also have access to joy. You know, because his promises, they're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, and he doesn't fall apart when everything else falls apart. So now that we know that we've got to count it all joy in every season, and that in God we have the ability to do that, you're probably thinking, oh, cool, that sounds all right. Sounds like I could probably be joyful all the time. But I just want you to understand how great this joy actually is. So that's my, th- my third point and the title of the sermon. Joy is greater. You know, the joy that is found only in God is greater than I think what we've believed and what we've understood and what we've, you know, assigned credit to it. You know, this joy is so great. It's, it's honestly beyond English words and descriptions. You know, I find English frustrating sometimes. You know how in like Hebrew and Greek, they have like a gazillion words for the same thing and we just have one. Like there's like six different words for love and we just have one. So it's so frustrating when it's just like joy. But it's so big. It's such a huge concept. And recently when I was talking to a friend uh, who asked me, so what does joy actually look like? What does it actually feel like? And in all honesty, I struggled to describe it. You know, because there really is nothing else like it. And there's no words worthy in our language of describing how glorious it really is. And I suspect that it probably looks and feels slightly different for everyone, depending on what's going on in your life. But the way that I've experienced this unique joy, you know, was a unique kind of peace and contentment and hope. You know, and all of these things remain constant despite the changes and all of the difficulties in my life. On the surface, joy seems like a bit of a complicated and confusing topic when you start to think about it. 
But when you break it down, it makes it a little bit easier to understand. You know, these three things, peace, contentment, and hope. They're a bit more familiar to us. You know, they're easier to recognize and receive. But these three things, peace, contentment, hope, those are actually the keys to unlocking the treasure of joy. You know, and they're even greater than what those words ascribe to it. You know, because God really wants greater things for us. He wants greater things than what we have thought they are. You know, he, you know, he wants these great things for us, even when we would gladly settle for less than what he wants to give us. So now if you turn to Matthew 13, now verse 44, just going to be talking about one of Jesus' beautiful parables. And this is one about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now let's just get a little bit of context here. You know, in biblical times, they didn't have the kind of futuristic banking system we do. You know, they didn't have ATMs or FPOS. They didn't have PayWave, and they definitely didn't have Apple Pay, if anyone else is on that bandwagon. You know, so people, they had to be very careful about what they did with the little wealth that they had. So often in times of war or strife, a man would, or a woman, I guess, could gather up all of her sort of valuable items, put them in like a jar and bury it in the ground. It's like a really extreme kind of savings account. You know, to actually get it out, you had to physically dig a hole and get it out of the ground. You know, I don't know if anyone needs that, but it's an idea. You know, but sometimes these treasures, these hidden treasures, weren't come back and found by the original owners. You know, it was found by someone else. And that person was then made massively rich because they'd found something extremely valuable that had been hidden away. You know, but in order to properly and legally own this treasure they'd found, they had to own the land, and therefore they'd own everything else that was in it. So after discovering the treasure... This man who'd found the treasure would go off and he'd sell all his other possessions. He would sell off everything else that he had that together were of lesser value than the treasure, but were enough to just buy that land. You know, he gave up everything else that together was of lesser value because he needed that money. He needed that thing to be able to attain the thing that he knew was of greater value. You know, and this is a parable of a man joyfully you know, ungrudgingly and willingly giving up everything of value that he had in order to obtain the kingdom of God. You know, he saw with his own eyes how much more value that the seemingly ordinary patch of grass, the seemingly ordinary field had because there was a great treasure hidden inside of it. On the surface, you know, this field would have looked like any other area in the town. You know, any other plain old field. But because he had seen the hidden treasure beneath the surface, he knew that this field was of much, much greater value than what it seemed. You know, metaphorically, he'd been awakened to the greater pleasure that could be offered to him only by God, that could be greater than anything that could be offered to him by the world. You know, God can sometimes look boring, on the surface. It can look a little bit plain. Same with the Bible. It's like, oh, it's just a book. You know, but when we are awakened 
to the greatness that is hidden within those pages, when we're awakened to the greatness of what is hidden in God. You know, we as his children are like that man. You know, we should have no issues giving away everything else that we have, everything else that we are holding on to so desperately to fill our lives with happiness. You know, we should have no issues giving that all away in order to attain this greater joy. And there's a quote from a a sermon by C.S. Lewis titled The Weight of Glory, which I think describes this whole concept of joy being greater um, just so profoundly. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. It's like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. Those are some heavy words. You know, words that I have been deeply challenged and convicted by. You know, we fall around. We waste our time with all of these temporary, low-level pleasures of the world, you know, when really infinite joy is offered to us. You know, we mess around and hold on to the praises of others and our jobs and our work and, you know, alcohol and sex when infinite joy is offered to us. You know, I'm not talking about an elevated level of happiness, you know, that comes from a good situation. I'm talking about infinite joy. You know, the, the special joy that is given directly to our hearts from the Lord our God. You know, it's a limitless kind of joy that is endless and impossible to measure. But until we, through the work of the Holy Spirit, get an understanding and awakening to this greater joy, we will continue to settle for less. We will continue to be easily pleased. And we also settle for less if we stop pursuing it. You know, because this joy is so great and so limitless that in order to receive it, we have to keep on going after it infinitely. You know, until we decide, you know, until we choose to follow the command to count it all joy in every season and rejoice in the Lord we will continue settling for less. You know, until we decide like that man to surrender all of the other things that we have been holding on to, you know, until we decide to take the need to let go of those things and rejoice in God every day in every season, we will settle for less than God's best. You know, and until we taste and see this greater joy, you know, and we never cease to pursue it. We will keep on settling for mud pies when God wants to take us to the beach. And we will, like Mitchell, settle for toast, you know, when God wants to give us ice cream. You know, true, this true joy from God is so much greater than everything that the world can offer you. And there's nothing that comes close to equaling it. You know, if you, you need to give up dictating how you feel in your life by what is going on within it. 
You know, you need to give up dictating how you feel just by what your circumstance is at the moment and shift your focus. We need to shift our focus from that and unto the never failing goodness and faithfulness and perfect will and plans of God. You know, it's, it's a hard sacrifice, but it's a sacrifice that we need to make. And it is so good because we truly can have the ability to live in freedom and joy, even in the times that absolutely suck. You know, and you can do that in just some really, really simple ways. It's not a hard thing like we've made it out to be, you know, but we've got to be intentional about it and intentional about shifting our focus. Like I said before, you've got to shift your focus from being on your circumstances and shift it from what you can do for you and into a place that rests in the knowledge that God is in control. You know, surrender your control. We sang a song about surrendering this morning and it means to give something up. Surrender means to hand something over to someone else or something else. So hand that control over to God and allow him to be the author of your life and to allow him to use whatever place you find yourself in, no matter what season you're dealing with. Hand it over to him and allow him to use it for his good and his glory for your life. You know, he will use every season, no matter how hard, to bring about transformation in your life. You know, we also need to get into the Word of God. Like I said before, it looks, sometimes looks boring on the surface. But the Bible is God-breathed and God-inspired. You know, the words in that book, you know, have been inspired by the one that gives us this infinite joy. You know, they say that the more time you spend with someone, the more you get to know them and have intentional time of hanging out with them, that you learn, you learn more about them as a person. You know, you learn to love them a whole lot more than when you first met them. You know, slowly and surely their um, influences and their perspectives rub off on you and they start to influence and change your life. You know, so obviously if we spend more time with the Bible, you know, if we spend more time intentionally seeking God, then we're going to get to know him more and we're going to be able to receive this joy that he has for us. You know, and this greater joy is also revealed to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So pray and ask for it. You know, God wants good things for his children. You know, and even if you've prayed a dozen or a hundred times to receive joy, pray again and pray again and pray again. You know, this joy is infinite. So our pursuit of it must also be infinite. You know, in just a few minutes, we're just going to have a bit of time of ministry before the end of the service, you know, when um, the elders are going to come up and um, others can pray with and for you. But before I finish, I just want to say, please don't give up. You know, don't think that you can't experience joy and contentment and peace and hope in your life because you're in a rough place. You know, just because you're struggling with maybe depression or anxiety like I am, with fear, with addiction or doubt, have hope. God is bigger than your troubles. You know, God wants you to have joy too. 
He doesn't want you trapped wherever you are. He hasn't forgotten about you. His heart and his joy are so much greater than your situation. I'm not going to pretend to know where you are, what you've been through or what you're going through. You know, I don't know if joy is something that's always come really naturally to you or if it's something you've struggled deeply to find. But I want to invite you today to receive this greater joy that God has to offer. You know, He desperately wants to give you joy in your life. So if what I've shared with you today has inspired you or touched your heart, then I just encourage you to come up and receive some prayer and some love from um, the wonderful people here. You know, if coming up the front just isn't for you, then I encourage you to reach out to someone you know in the week or after the service or in the cafe and just tell them what you're trying to deal with, what you're struggling with. You know, there's a huge power that comes in acknowledging and speaking out what we're struggling with. You know, it breaks off a little bit of the hold that it has on our lives when we declare it out loud. So just talk to someone, you know, and just know that God has all the answers. You know, God doesn't want you stuck. You know, He doesn't want you stuck and feeling afraid in your life. You know, He wants us in full freedom and in His greater joy. Thank you.